For too long, women have not been heard or believed if they dared to speak their truth to the power of men. But their time is up. The conversations around sexual assault, harassment, and inequality that started last year continued into this one amid half-baked apologies and the widespread undermining of women's rights and interests. Less than a day into 2018, actresses and activists teamed up to declare that the clock had run out on toxic masculinity. Two days later, Tina Smith was sworn into office, bringing the number of women currently serving in the Senate to a record-breaking 22. At the same time, women all over the world spent the month gearing up to celebrate the anniversary of last year's Women's March by making this year's even bigger. The rise of the woman is the rise of the nation, and 2018 is here. We're spending it celebrating women. First, we'll hear the story of an activist, survivor, and community organizer who finds her voice and the courage to help other women find theirs. Then, we'll tag along with two recent transplants as they get to know Brooklyn and the women who shaped it with the help of an unconventional guide. And finally, we'll talk to two artists, each creating work that reflects their culture and borrows from its past. New year, new you. Girls rule and boys drool. Time's up in Brooklyn, USA. Here's Tarana. One of the interesting things about this moment is that people are like, we're starting a movement. <laughs> I'm like, no, you're joining a movement. Before the Me Too hashtag, before hashtags, period, even before Twitter's first birthday, Tarana Burke started a campaign to break the silence between survivors of sexual assault. This activist has been working for over a decade. And just now, we're coming to learn about her and her movement. Here is... Tarana Burke. Tarana's movement has been alive for over a decade, but her social justice work began years before Me Too. I am a typical black girl from the Bronx. I came from a family that was, at least my grandfather in particular, my mother were very political, and I've read a lot. Tony Morrison, Maya Angelou, Zora Neale Hurston, in some ways those Books raised me. I read those books probably earlier than most people, like 11, 12, 13 years old. And then I became an organizer at 14. I fell in love with the 21st Century Youth Leadership Movement, which was an organization dedicated to training young people to carry on the legacy of the Civil Rights and Black Power Movement. And so I was trained as an organizer at 14, and it's been my lifeblood ever since. Tarana continued to work with 21st Century Youth Summer Leadership. When she became a leader within the organization at 22, she was training and mentoring students of her own. I was actually the camp director for uh, summer leadership camps. There was a young girl, Heaven, who had become just my little special. What happens often is that some of the young people shared their experiences with sexual violence, and she started to share hers, but didn't, didn't share the entire story. And then, like, the next day following the session, she started following me, just, I need to talk to you, Ms. Tehran, I need to talk to you. And I knew from her eyes, I knew from her body language, I just knew. I think there's sometimes a way that survivors can sense that in other survivors. I knew she wanted to share that part of her story with me. 
And you know, I was the little tough girl, and I was the one who got in trouble a lot, and I was the one who had a smart mouth. But at the time in my life, I was 22, and I just, I had not really dealt with processing my own pain and my own experience with sexual violence, and I was still just finding language to describe what happened to me, and I could not hold space for her. She had found the courage to be vulnerable, and I couldn't find the courage to at least say, me too. It was in that moment that the Me Too movement was born. And 10 years after finding her own courage, Tarana created Just Be Inc., a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping victims of sexual assault. Tarana's told that story many times since the hashtag Me Too went viral. In that time, she's been named one of Time Magazine's People of the Year, attended the Golden Globe Awards, and spread the word about Me Too in countless interviews. This hashtag explosion has completely changed um, my life and probably the trajectory of my work. We introduced it in 2006, 2007, um, our early days with the internet were on MySpace, and we interacted with a lot of black women. As a matter of fact, it was black women, as usual, who um, really got us started in those early days. There was not large mainstream support of the idea of Me Too until recently. Hashtag resistance is interesting, right? It's a new phenomenon, obviously, and um, I'm an old organizer, <laughs> so. It's easy to be swept up in the hype and the numbers, but what we represent here today is a reminder, a living, breathing reminder that we are human beings, not hashtags. <laughs> I think that for hashtag resistance to be effective, it has to have a component of it that comes off of the computer and into the streets. We have, you know, 12 million engagements with this or more than that across social media, which means that you have millions and millions of people who have disclosed their experience with sexual violence. When this hashtag dies down or goes away or the news cycle changes, Something has to happen. There has to be some container to process that. Um, there has to be some tools that we put out that help people think about what that means, what happens next in their own lives. Tools like wraparound services and schools for survivors of sexual assault, or a say-no-to-drug style curriculum to teach students about consent, in addition to new policies and renewed community action. The idea behind Me Too and the idea of empowerment through empathy are just entry points into the healing journey. We need to reshape the conversation in some ways or expand the conversation beyond individuals, right? It's Harvey Weinstein, it's Bill Cosby, it's Bill O'Reilly, and it's all these like big bad men who did these big bad things, as opposed to the systems that are in place that allow sexual violence to flourish. Like we have to have conversations about what dismantling those systems look like, and beyond conversations, there needs to be community action in place to help start interrupting and dismantling those systems. That's my work. If I never did another TV interview or radio interview or saw another hashtag, I'd be in these streets. So this is the final section. It's called okay. intersectionality. Oh, jeez. <laughs> We're going to talk about white women. <laughs> so historically in movements, um, there's been a dichotomy between white women and women of color. I've said many times that sexual violence knows no race or class or gender, um, but the response to sexual violence does. We know that 
black women are not believed, right? We know that black women have been highly sexualized in both pop culture, politically, uh, from welfare queens to thoughts. Like there's just a, a, a running theme of, of black women being sexual, hypersexual beings. Um, and we also know historically that black women haven't been protected in the mainstream when it comes to sexual violence. And I think about Harvey Weinstein singling out Lupita. I think about Leslie Jones who was attacked on social media and how there was not a groundswell of support for her from across the board, from white women in America. And I think about R. Kelly and how he's still allowed to thrive in the music industry after terrorizing, victimizing, uh, dehumanizing black girls for more than 20 years. Mark Anthony Neal said this in, in an article, any one of his victims had been a white girl, just one it would be a whole different conversation. Stats from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that women of color experience higher rates of sexual violence. Women with lower incomes and trans women experience some of the highest rates of sexual violence. And for Tarana Burke, it's crucial that these voices take center stage. We can march and we can make our own voices heard but if we are not centering and elevating the voices often drowned out, meaning black folks and brown folks and native folks and Asian folks and queer folks and trans folks and disabled folks, then our work will ring hollow. What we know from our history is that we always have to make space for ourselves. We have to create spaces for ourselves. And I think this is no different. I will continue to make spaces and bring us into every room I come in and make sure that the most marginalized voices are included. My hope is that people can see that this is not a moment to exclude people. This is not a moment to start picking and choosing like who can and can't have this healing and who can and cannot be a part of this, um, this movement. And I think as we continue to do this work, people on both sides will see that every single voice for an issue like this is extremely important. We have kicked in the door and now it's time to tear down the house brick by brick. <laughs> If you are ready, let me hear you say, me too. Me too. Me too. Me too. Thank you. That piece was produced by Roe Johnson and edited by Emily Bogosian. daunting and lonely to find your way around Brooklyn if you've only recently arrived. But if you're lucky and look hard enough, the women who came before you can show you the way. Here's Hira. Imagine that you are trying to navigate the city of New York and try to understand the length and breadth of the islands that make up this bustling metropolis. You may choose to study the color-coded subway map, endeavoring to make sense of the alphabetical and numerical train routes which link station hubs. You realize that one of the primary guides to the city, much like the cityscape in general, pays tribute to the men who colonized, built, and governed the city. There is no mention of women. We found City of Women, a map published by Rebecca Solnit in The New Yorker. It cleverly uses the subway map as its base layer, replacing the station names with those of women that had some association with the corresponding neighborhood. 
we wanted to explore the stories of these women and expand on what the map has to offer by adding to it. My name is Paula Messina. I moved to Bay Ridge from Brazil four years ago and unexpectedly discovered iterations of my grandmother's Lebanese recipes right down the street from my apartment building. I didn't know how easily the ocean could be reached, how some nights the foghorns of incoming ships would lull me to sleep. I was interviewing a longtime Bay Ridge resident on the street one day. He told me he liked the neighborhood for the pretty women that came around asking questions. In that moment, I ignored his comment. My response now would be, tell me about the women of Bay Ridge, their stories, and unexpected discoveries. My name is Hira Nabi, and I have moved around over Brooklyn a lot. I've lived in Prospect Lafferts Gardens, Windsor Terrace, Park Slope, Bay Ridge, Prospect Park South, Ditmas Park, South Slope on the way to Sunset Park, Bed-Stuy, Greenpoint, and Clinton Hill. In Greenpoint, I found a lot of churches, flea markets, and a diminishing Ukrainian diaspora. In Ditmas Park, I found massive old trees, sweet, strong karak chai sold in styrofoam cups that I had otherwise only drank in Pakistan. I tried to live around Prospect Park, and I lived on both sides of it and below it, living off the FG and the BQ train lines. We are Paula Messina and Hira Nabi, two New York transplants. This is Shima. We went to Bushwick in search of Rosie Perez's early childhood. We found an engraved sign over an entrance to a building that used to be part of the Greenpoint Hospital. Perez was born in that hospital. Hi. Do you have a sign outside that says this is the outpatient department for the Greenpoint Hospital? Oh, um, that, 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 that used to be Greenpoint Hospital, but they renovated the building too soon. Yeah, so we took over the building. So we're not no longer Greenpoint Hospital. Bushwick and East Williamsburg are rapidly changing neighborhoods. Not a lot of people wanted to talk. Even though we pretty much just wanted to chat about Rosie's dance moves and do the right thing. I am from New York City, yes, and I've lived in Williamsburg since I was 12 or 13. Right when I turned 13, we moved here. Do you know about Rosie Perez? The actress? Yes. What do you know about her? I remember she was in White Man Can't Jump. Foods that begin with the letter Q. I kind of love her. She's a New York icon. Do you know that she's from around here? Uh, I believe it, yeah. I believe that she's from around here. Okay. Yeah, but I did not know that, no. I did not know that. Do you know Rosie Perez? Yeah. Not the actress. What about her? She was she's not from this neighborhood. She was born here. No way. Like Greenpoint Hospital, but she's from the city or somewhere. She's not from I would have known her. I would have known her all my life. Cause I've been here. I know everybody. I'm born out and raised out here. But I've been out here forty something years. But this has changed. This was, I mean it's not changed completely because they can't stop it. Let me show you something. You see that building over there? They got a nice new building. It's got a doorman, swimming pool, gym. It's facing a homeless shelter. <laughs> they left that out to be sure. When they went to the apartment, they didn't tell them all oh, projects around the corner and a homeless shelter. That they left out. I can't believe they're getting 4,000, almost 4,000. They're three-bedroom apartments. It's too much money to live in this hood. 
Michelle Dissertou famously said that New York has never learned the art of growing old by playing on all its pasts. Its present invents itself from hour to hour in the act of throwing away its previous accomplishments and challenging the future. I agree with the sentiment. New York sloughs off its past selves, rebuilding and reimagining itself in a constant upheaval that roars and groans and shines bright, reflects, diamond-like, glinting by day and night. And in this upheaval, if we look hard enough, sometimes we get lucky. This poem is not consent. I do not consent to my mother, to my father, to the teachers, to the FBI, to South Africa, to Bedford Star, to Park Avenue, to American Airlines, to the hard-on idlers on the corners, to the sneaky creeps in cars. I am not wrong. Wrong is not my name. My name is my own, my own, my own. And I can't tell you who the hell set things up like this. But I can tell you that from now on, my resistance, my simple and daily and nightly self-determination may very well cost you your life. Next, we trekked into the edges of Bed-Stuy on a mission to find where June Jordan lived after her family moved from the Riverside Housing Projects in Harlem to a brownstone on Hancock Street in 1942. June Millicent Jordan was a Caribbean-American poet, essayist, and activist. She self-identified as bisexual in her writing. She was the author or editor of 28 books, a teacher, a feminist, a humanist, above all. My name is Frank Pryor, and I live here in Hancock Street, Brooklyn, New York. Bed-Stuy, do or die, it's an old saying. You know, every community got their own saying. We say, Bed-Stuy, do or die. Like, you hear a lot of names over the years. I never had no personal interactions with her. But uh, I know she was a famous black person, activist, uh, I think author. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know of the, of the name. Uh, but, but won't you want to talk to somebody that's been living here for a very long time? I only lived here for 34 years. I have another person that live up the block that's been living here for like mucho years. He's, he's calling me back. David. Yes, sir. Uh, look out your window for a minute. Okay. Do you, do you, do you, do you know June Jordan? June Jordan? Yeah. No. She used, she used to live in Anchor. I think I read a call before. Yeah, I read a book about her. It's like a history book. They were telling about, like, she's a black lady. Yeah, they were telling about some black history. She was our, like, uh, what she do for a living? She was an astronaut? She wrote and she died. Okay, I think I read a book about her still. Tell me something. What do you think would happen if every time they kill a black boy, then we kill a cop. Every time they kill a black man, then we kill a cop. You think the accident rate would lower subsequently? 
It's hard to find stories of women. Harder still to find memories and stories of long-gone dullies, laundromats, families that bought and sold homes, and fading impressions from more than half a century ago. Where do you go to seek out stories of the brick and mortar that make up your block? And the trees that shade it? And what of those women that move through it? That piece was produced by Hiranabe and Paola Messina. If our current administration is any indication, those who haven't learned from history really are doomed to repeat it. On the other hand, those who carefully study the past can find themselves rewarded and inspired to bring the best parts of it into their present. Here's Martha. Do you remain who you are in your culture? What if there is no land that connects you? Does that mean you're no longer who you are? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Radico Radio. I'm Jocelyn Aram. And I'm Jessica Thompson. Today, we'll be speaking with two Brooklyn-based artists, Martha Redbone, a singer, songwriter, producer, composer, and librettist, and Jayshri Abachandani, a visual artist and curator. Martha Redbone, do you remember when you decided to start looking back as an artist to your roots and wanting to bring that into your music? It really began with being a child and coming to New York City after the sixth grade and um, having a Native American mom and an African American dad and living in a Caribbean neighborhood where most people thought that we were um, Latino. So all of these different boxes that we were meant to kind of check, these things didn't really match me except for one box. I grew up in the 80s and during the hip-hop era and inside of our house was still Appalachia, you know, beans on the stove and somebody was baking bread and somebody was beating and making star quilts. And, and so that didn't really translate in New York City. So you kind of end up living this kind of double life. And then as I got older and the elders got older and left us, you know, I realized how important it is to keep telling our family stories and to honor where we come from. albums, uh, The Garden of Love, Songs of William Blake, where I took the poetry of William Blake and set it to the music of the mountains, the sound of, of, of Appalachia. And now it's been, the, the album is now being used as a part of a lot of classrooms now, and a lot of school teachers are using it to, to discuss uh, poetry and, and American history. So that's incredible. So it works. You know, it works. Jayshree, tell us about the work that you do. I moved to this country in 1984 as a teenager, and I was born in India, and my family hails from Pakistan. In my early 20s, I got involved in South Asian progressive political organizing, including organizations that worked against racism and the queer 
organization, South Asian Lesbian and Gay Association. And in that space, I found that social justice was the primary impetus for us to be together, and there was no place for us to explore our creative voices. And so in 1997, I founded Saucy, which is the South Asian Women's Creative Collective. Taking it to archives, since we're talking about archives, I worked on a project called Before Kali, 108 clay sculptures of women. They were based on Indus Valley figurines. I mentioned I come from Sindh, where the Indus Valley is, and that is kind of the cradle of Indian civilization. So when I was growing up in India, I couldn't access my language, my land, the artifacts, and all that I ever learned from Indian textbooks was this one dancing girl. But then through my own research, I kind of discovered that they had found thousands and thousands of these terracotta figurines that were incredible. They were superbly feminist. They were like one-breasted women. They were animal-headed women. They were fat women, old women, young women, a diversity of like female form that has been lost in Indian sculpture over the millennia. I found them to be so incredibly powerful in a way to communicate everything that was happening in our lives at the moment. This is like a rawness in that and honesty. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the source, <laughs> it's yeah. really, it's so empowering, you know, and inspiring. That's why we love talking about this stuff, though, because it really, it is this connecting force. It seems like what you're both talking about is a reclaiming of this past truth that we don't have this much access to unless we go back and discover it and, and reaffirm what, what we know. One of the things that I noticed just in, in listening to Jeshri's um, description of, of her work is Again, what I go back to this urgency of this empowerment and resurgence of empowering women and sisterhood and uh, honoring who we are and where we come from as women. And I think the, the times are getting worse and more and more kind of ignorant, which um, for me creates an urgency to speak our truth. Part of the, the, the piece that I'm developing is um, talking about, you know, these four generations of Cherokee women. You know, women have always been leaders of our communities for thousands and thousands of years. And there were laws put in place to, to squash us. These are things that we have to kind of acknowledge, accept, and also stand up for ourselves as well, especially in this day and age with all of these, you know, things going on with... You know. When I listen to you talk about your matrilineal past, it just makes me want to weep. Like It awakens like an ache in me that this land once knew that way of being and this is where we are today. It's really, it's devastating. I'm, I'm actually encouraged because look at the work that you're doing. Some people would consider that radical. It's not radical. You're reminding everyone of where we come from. Yeah. It all comes back to storytelling in a way, you know, when we think of drawing from the past and the way that we recontextualize it. The thread is the story. Right, right, but and different ways of representing that. Do you remain who you are in your culture? What if there is no land that connects you? Does that mean you're no longer who you are? 
if people wonder why, you know, I, I tell these stories, this is why. That piece was produced by Jocelyn Aram and Jessica Thompson. We're a Grammy-nominated producer-engineer team interested in exploring conversations with innovative minds across the creative fields who are tapping into their histories to transform the past and produce exciting, groundbreaking work today. Brooklyn USA is produced and edited by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Bogosian, with help from Ariana Rosas. Thanks to Tarana Burke for sitting down with Roe Johnson and for saying me too. Thanks to Hiranavi and Paola Messina for taking us on a walk on Brooklyn's feminine side. Their story featured a reading of June Jordan's 1974 poem about police violence, read by Mariah Hope Thomas, and is the first of many trips along the she map that they plan on taking. Thanks to Martha Redbone, Jayshree Abichandani, Jocelyn Aram, and Jessica Thompson for inviting us into the studio and into their process. Jocelyn and Jessica run Arbo Radigo, which is a company that connects past and present through innovative transmedia projects at the intersection of the arts, culture, archives, and social justice. You can learn more about Arbo Radico at arboradico.com, A-R-B-O-R-A-D-I-K-O. This episode featured music from the DeWolf and Cuniverse Music Libraries, as well as original music by Imad Mansar. If you like what you hear, think we got something wrong, or just want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet at Brick Radio, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And if you really like what you hear, rate us and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Brooklyn USA is a production of Brick Radio. For more information on this and all of our podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. These people have been using crazy pictures of me. I'm like, don't use those pictures. Well, I knew it when I saw the one in Philadelphia and I saw those pink shoes. Every black woman who I've talked to in the interview has said, so, where are those shoes? Those pink shoes. <laughs>